Good morning, everyone, and welcome to a special edition of A Vision for You. Today is Sunday, April 2nd, 2017. The share IDs for Friday, March 31st, are the 7 a.m. Eastern meeting, 9783, and the 10 a.m. Eastern meeting, 9785. This morning, A Vision for You presents more about alcoholism. The question is how to stop altogether. The big book teaches us we have a twofold illness, the allergy of the body and the obsession of the mind. The allergy of the body is a bad problem. However, the big book teaches us that we have a problem worse than that. The big book says it's our main problem. We've got a mental problem. We've got a problem with our minds. Here to speak about Chapter 3, more about alcoholism, is Kim G., a recovered compulsive overeater from New Jersey. Kim is dedicated to living the 12-step way of life and carrying the message of recovery. Always a pleasure. Welcome, Kim. Good morning, Leah. Good morning, everyone. My name is Kim J., and I am so excited to be talking about Chapter 3, more about alcoholism. You know, this is the last of the Step 1 chapters. And, you know, for years before OA, and unfortunately for years in Overy was Anonymous, I didn't know what Step 1 really was. For me, I thought Step 1 was that food and weight was my problem. So in the meeting, when people said, how many compulsive overeaters are here today, I would raise my hand. And what I realized now is I was raising my hand to the idea that I'm fat and I don't want to be fat anymore or I am thin and I'm terrified of getting fat again. So food and weight was my problem. I had to look at my history. I have been, I've been abstinent hundreds of times. Why do I go back? You know, I have, my history physically is I, my top weight was a size 24 in my early 20s where I couldn't walk up a flight of stairs without catching my breath and was being threatened to be put on high blood pressure medication. I also dieted my way down to a size 2 where I was losing my hair and my period had stopped. And I've also been the current size I am now, size 8, 10, where I've been binging and purging and over-exercising to the point that I, I can't even see straight. So it can't be that food and weight is my problem. So these step one chapters explain to me what it means to be a real compulsive overeater. So I just want to summarize to begin with, what are those first three chapters teaching us before we get into more about alcoholism? So the four chapters are the doctor's opinion, Bill's story, there is a solution, and what we're going to go over today, more about alcoholism. So in the doctor's opinion, we learn that twofold nature that Leah just talked about, that allergy of the body and obsession of the mind. And one of my favorite AA speakers summarizes that perfectly, Sandy B. He says, I am an alcoholic, so I'm going to put it for me, I am a compulsive overeater if I cannot eat safely and I cannot be accident contently. And then we go into Bill's story, and that's where we learn to identify in. Because even knowing the medical diagnosis, is that enough for me to know that this is the diagnosis I have for myself? So what we want to do in Bill's story is we want to see, did we eat like Bill drank? Did we feel like Bill felt? Did we think like Bill thinks? And we're going to identify that progression of the illness. We're going to see him go from fun and excitement to necessity to oblivion? Do I identify in with Bill Wilson? And then in there is a solution. A lot of that chapter is telling me who I am not. 
We're going to learn about the moderate eater, the heavy eater, the real compulsive overeater, which we started to go over just this past Friday. But if I'm the real compulsive overeater, I've lost the power of choice. You know, when they say my drug of choice, it can't be food for me because I've chosen thousands of times not to eat, and yet I eat over and over. But if I just had the allergy, the fact is it would be academic because I would never take that first drink. If I just had the allergy, then rehabs would kick out 100% recovery because they separate people from whatever their alcoholic substance is. You can have a rational conversation, tell those people not to eat, drink, do drugs or whatever, and they would never do it again. If it was just the allergy, conventional diets would work. Honestly, my food plan is much different than probably a lot of conventional diet programs. The reason I need to come to Overeaters Anonymous is because of the chapter we're about to study today, more about alcoholism. Why do I need the 12 steps? The 12 steps do not treat the allergy. Abstinence treats the allergy. So we're going to hear about four stories, and I'm going to go over three of them today, but not talk about what people that are drunk and can't get sober. They're going to talk to us about people who are sober and make that insane decision to pick up. So the question is, why when I'm abstinent? And I have the inability not to stay stopped. That is the true definition of powerlessness. My powerlessness, honestly, isn't as much in the allergy. That's a biological function. That's never going away. My true powerlessness is why when I'm not experiencing the allergy, and I've had thousands of examples of the consequences if I take that first drink, do I make that insane decision to pick up that first drink? So let's go into more about alcoholism, and hopefully you guys have your books available. So we're going to go into that, the page 30, that, even that first paragraph. Most of us have been unwilling to admit we were out real alcoholics. No person likes to think himself bodily and mentally different. Once again, allergy of the body, obsession of the mind. Therefore, it's not surprising that our drinking careers have been characterized by countless vain attempts to prove we could drink like other people. The idea that somehow... Someday he will control and enjoy his drinking is the great obsession of every abnormal drinker. The persistence of this illusion is astonishing. Many of us pursue it into the gates of insanity and death. So that's the illusion. And I think to myself, one of the dieting techniques I had in Overeaters Anonymous was there was a meeting at this mall on Tuesdays and Thursdays. So the way that I would handle my food was on those Thursdays, Tuesdays and Thursdays, I would go to the mall and I would have two slices of pizza and then go to the meeting. That's how I controlled and enjoyed my eating. Now, I didn't connect the fact that the next day I was binging because I couldn't do that. But that's my delusion because when I'm controlling it, I can't enjoy it. And when I'm enjoying it, I can't control it. And then the second paragraph is talking about the delusion. The delusion like like other people have to be smashed. And I have to tell you, even my delusion was a delusion because I have a lot of normal eaters in my life. I always think of my friend Melissa, and we go out to dinner, and a bunch of us will meet together, and she always is running late, and she sits down, and she's like, oh, my God, I'm so hungry. And then she'll look up, and she'll go, oh, my God, I forgot to eat lunch. I've never forgotten to eat lunch. And then she'll order her food. She'll order an appetizer because she wants to share it with the group. I do not like sharing my food. And when she gets her, her main course, she often pushes stuff to the side. And I'll say, what are you doing? And she goes, well, I thought I was in the mood for it, and now I'm not. And she always, always has to have dessert. She loves chocolate. And one of two things normally happens. 
One, she'll have a couple bites and say, oh, gosh, that's too rich. I can't have any more, which I have to tell you, I always thought people were lying when they said that. And the other one is, oh, I'm just too full. I can't finish it. That is a normal eater. I don't want to be a normal eater. I want to indulge in my disease to the nth degree, and I want to look like my friend Melissa. So my delusion is not that I want to be a normal eater. My delusion is I want to eat like a real compulsive overeater, and I want absolution from the consequences. That is my delusion. And then when we get into that third paragraph, Bill doesn't repeat himself very much, but I see the word control in there four times. That is my delusion. I want to be able to control this. It talks about many of us felt at times we were regaining control, but such intervals, usually brief, were inevitably followed by still less control, which led in time to pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization. We are convinced to a man that alcoholics of our type are in the grip of a progressive illness. Over any considerable period, we get worse, never better. So they're talking about the progression of the illness, and I have to tell you, I experienced this in the rooms of Overeaters Anonymous. Very common in my area, we have these relapse and recovery meetings because I don't know about you guys, the compulsive overeaters of my type and in my area love to talk about relapse. Love it. We love it. We all identify in. But what I had to recognize was if I was saying I was relapse, relapse survivor, relapse and recovery, what is recovery? Recovery is the 12 steps. If I am simply picking up and going to meetings and not being able to eat, picking up and working some tools and not being able to eat, picking up and maybe even reading the steps but not doing the steps, that is not relapse and recovery. That's the progression of the illness. Because in the beginning, maybe doing some tools worked until they stopped working. Maybe in the beginning, having a sponsor on my butt daily worked until it stopped working. Because as my disease progressed, human aid could not keep me sober. This, this, this fellowship is incredibly powerful. And for a time, it helped keep me sober. It helped keep me abstinent. But the progression of the illness overtook any type of human aid that I could do. What am I going to do then? And they talk here. The next, they're, tr- they're trying to ground this home. They were like men who've lost their legs. They're never getting them back. That might be a little bit obscure for you to understand, so I like to use a real simple one. I don't know how many of you out there wear glasses, but if you do, or even contacts, do you get up in the morning and think to yourself, is today a day I want to wear glasses? Do you plan for your vacation and think to yourself, maybe this vacation I'll leave my glasses at home? Do you ever think to yourself, well, it's my birthday, I don't really need to wear glasses. No, you fully concede to your innermost self that you can't see unless you have your glasses or your contacts in. That is the absolute um, necessity that we have to concede to with this compulsive overeating. I am never not going to be a compulsive overeater. Now, the miracle is I don't have to suffer from compulsive overeating if I do these steps, but it does not change the fact that I have to fully concede. If I think I'm 98% a compulsive overeater, that 2% will, will take me out. So if we go down to the bottom of 31 now, because we don't like to pronounce any individual an alcoholic, but you can quickly diagnose yourself. Step over to the nearest barroom and try some controlled drinking. Try to drink and stop abruptly. Now, I'm not saying if you're asking it right now, you should try this experiment. Sometimes I know, for me, I can just look back at my own experience. Personally, I think of babysitting. 
I don't know about you again, but I always take my babysitting jobs by what they had in their pantry. I could care less what the kids were like. I would accept the job, check out their pantry, and if the pantry sucked, I would not go back. And I was a really good babysitter because I got those kids to bed on time, not because I was responsible, but because I wanted to be alone with their pantry. And I would say, tonight, I'm only going to have three Oreos. And I would sit down and I'd watch TV having those three Oreos, and the next commercial, I would get up and I would get three more. And I would sit down and I'd say, no, that's it, I'm done. And I wouldn't even make it to the next commercial before I get up and get three more Oreos. And by the end of it, I'm three, four, five sleeves, I finished the bag of Oreos. And I'm going out to my car to put the bag of Oreos in my car that's empty because I'm embarrassed to put it in their trash can. You know, I also thought to myself, well, you know what, I'm depriving myself. That's the problem. If I get really good binge foods, maybe I'll be able to stay, maybe I'll be able to be satisfied. <clears throat> so in Overeaters Anonymous, in Relapse, I would go around to a bunch of different um, the crappiest grocery stores because I don't want to run into any OA people. And I would always get three flavors of Ben & Jerry's. I would get a cheese danish, I would get a peanut butter something, and I would get a wild card, whatever was on sale. Because I'm not only a compulsive overeater, I'm a cheap compulsive overeater. And I would put them all out on my coffee table, and I'd have one bite of the Ben & Jerry's, one bite of the peanut butter, one bite of another Ben & Jerry's, one bite of the, of the Danish, one bite of the other Ben & Jerry's, and one bite of the, the um, wild card. And say, this, see, I'm just going to have a little bit, and I'll be fine. And then I would get to the point I couldn't breathe, and I'd put all the ice cream back in the, in the refrigerator and say, no more. No more for tonight. I'm going to make this last the weekend. And eventually, a half hour later, I'd pull out the Ben & Jerry's, and I would start the whole thing again. My history tells me that I cannot drink and stop abruptly. I have this allergy. So let's go to page 32, and we're going to learn, meet one of these gentlemen. And this one gentleman is called the Man of 30. That second full paragraph on page 32. So the man of 30 was doing a great deal of spree drinking. He was very nervous in the morning, restless, irritable, discontent, like the doctor's opinion teaches us. After these bouts, he quieted himself with more liquor. So once again, we are introduced to the idea, food is not my problem. Food is my solution. My problem is I am very uncomfortable abstinence. I have an abnormal reaction to abstinence. I get restless, I get irritable, I get discontent, I get uncomfortable in my own skin. And the only way I know to quiet my mind and shut it the heck up is to eat the food. And he talks about the fact he's, he, has a, he wants to be successful in business. And he says, I will not drink until I retire. And being a man of strong willpower, he was able to do that. But it says, um, about halfway down that paragraph, he fell victim to a belief which practically every alcoholic has that his long period of sobriety and self-discipline had qualified him to drink as other men. My experience for myself in observation in OA is a lot of times this is, this is equated with being at a normal body weight for a certain amount of time, and we think we're okay. For me personally, I think of the, the experience that I was the intergroup chair, I went up on the region board, and I, had been, I was absent in about six years, white-knuckled, militant, oh, my God, I'm going to go to bed and I'm going to beat the food every day kind of abstinence. So painful. Better than being the food, but very painful being the abstinence. And they asked me to run for World Service Trustee. And I'm a good little girl. I want to do what people tell me to do, but I don't want to be World Service Trustee. 
And I don't know how to express that because I haven't worked the steps. I haven't had a spiritual awakening. I don't know how to handle life. And my keen alcoholic mind told me, you know what? If you pick up, you're not qualified to be World Service Trustee, and then you don't have to say no. So I purposely picked up, not understanding that my disease progressed those six years that I was white knuckled abstinent, and I was never able to stay abstinent more than eight or nine months. And then that progressed into eight or nine weeks, and that progressed into eight or nine days, and that progressed into eight or nine hours. And you can see the same thing happen with this gentleman where he was abstinent or sober for 25 years and he was dead within four years because that disease had progressed so much. So if we go up to the top of page um, 33, it says this, this case contains a powerful lesson. Most of us have believed if we remain sober for a long stretch, we could therefore drink normally. But here is a man at 55 years found he was just where he had left off at 30. We have seen the truth demonstrated again and again. Once an alcoholic, always an alcoholic. Commencing to drink after a period of sobriety, we are in a short time as bad as ever. If we are planning to stop drinking, there must be no reservation of any kind, nor any lurking notion that someday we will be immune to alcohol. And I have to tell you, one of the things that makes me sad is there are groups of Overeaters Anonymous that believe having that remain sober for a long stretch, we could therefore drink normally. I hear people share that I, that I can now have cake on my birthday, if that's one of your binge foods. I hear people say, if you have a spiritual awakening, God will allow you to control your eating. God will help you to moderate. That is not what the big book tells me, and that is not what my experience tells me. I don't think that if I have an anaphylactic reaction to peanuts, that I can get holy enough or connected to God enough that I'm not going to have that reaction to peanuts. It's a biological function. It's separate. What these 12 steps do, what the miracle that you can experience, which millions of addicts have experienced, is you can work through these steps, and you're not going to want to have your binge foods. That's the miracle. Not that you can eat them, but that you're not going to want them. So that if we are planning to stop drinking, that's a really good question. Are you planning to stop eating? Or are you just trying to jig the system, which I try to do for years? There must be no reservation of any kind, no lurking notion that someday we'll be immune to alcohol. We cannot say, I will abstain from these foods till I get to a certain body size. I will abstain from these foods till I get through the 12 steps. I will abstain from these foods until my doctor gets me off my diabetic medication. I have to have no lurking notion at all. And let's slam that idea home. Let's go to page 34. Or that second full paragraph. So for those who are unable to drink moderately, that's the conclusion. Unable to drink moderately. The question is how to stop altogether. We are assuming, of course, that the reader desires to stop. Whether such a person can quit on a non-spiritual basis depends upon the extent which has already lost the power of choice, whether he will drink or not. Many of us felt we had plenty of character. There was a tremendous urge to cease forever, yet we found it impossible. This is the baffling feature of alcoholism as we know it. The utter, utter inability to leave it alone, no matter how great the necessity or the wish. So the question is, do I want to stop altogether? And we are assuming that the the reader desires to stop. I have to tell you, that's why I became bulimic. I didn't want to stop. I just wanted a way out of the consequences. And I have to tell you, I did not come into Overs Anonymous at my size 24. 
I came into Overeaters Anonymous after bulimia got me down to a side. I didn't have to shop in the big girl stores. And I was more terrified then because I no longer had what I thought was my problem. I wasn't obese. And yet my mind was more insane. So the question is, do we have a desire to stop? And it says here, um, you know, that quitting on a non-spiritual basis. I have to tell you that that's one of the confusing things. You know, in Overeaters Anonymous, we don't have just real compulsive overeaters in it. We have moderate eaters and we have hard eaters. And everyone is welcome because this is a fellowship that the only, the only um, requirement is a desire to stop eating. So those people that come in and they can work the tools and stay abstinent contently, or maybe they can get a food plan and talk about their feelings in a meeting and can stay abstinent contently, that is a non-spiritual basis. And if any of you are out on the line, thank you for coming. I'm glad this is working for you, but please don't sponsor someone like me. Because if you sponsor someone like me who needs a spiritual solution, and I try to imitate you who don't need a spiritual solution, I'm going to die in this disease. So we have to recognize, are you, if you're the real compulsive overeater, you need to have a sponsor that is a real compulsive overeater. If you are a real compulsive overeater, you need to sponsor people that are real compulsive overeaters. And when it talks about, you know, the, the baffling feature, once again, for me, I think about this idea. What I did is I created all these red lines to give myself a delusion of control. You know what? When I turn 16, I'm going to do something about this weight. And I would turn 16 and go, you know, I really think I'm going to wait till I graduate. When I turn 18, yeah, that, that, that's what I meant. When I turn 18. And I would give myself the delusion I had control. And then I would get to 18, no, you know, it's really 21. When I go out to the bars at 21, that's when I'm going to do something about this. Or I would do the same thing with the, with the number on the scale or the size of my dress. But I have to tell you, when I was 23 years old and I thought this was really, I'm done. I am going to do this. And I couldn't. I was baffled, absolutely baffled. that I had the utter inability to leave it alone no matter how many great the necessity of the wish. And why is that? If we go to the top of page 35, the very first sentence, so we shall describe some of the mental states which precede a relapse into drinking. For obviously this is the crux of the problem. What sort of thinking dominates an alcoholic who repeats time after time the desperate experiment of the first drink? That was so critical for me. Because I thought the problem was I can't just have two donuts. Because, you see, I would buy a dozen donuts for my office going into work because I'm a good employee and I want to share that with my office. But I figure, you know, since I'm driving there, I might as well have the one or two that would have been allotted to me anyways. And by the time I get to work, I notice that six or seven of them are gone. And I think the problem is I couldn't stop at the one or two, which was my fair share because I bought the donuts. What I didn't understand was the fact that the problem is in my mind and that desperate experiment of the first drink. So now we're going to talk about Jim and Fred. And I love Jim and Fred. I love to compare the two. Because I have to tell you that I thought my problem was things weren't going my way. If I can control my outside environment. See, I'm the victim of the delusion that if I can wrest satisfaction happen out of this world and I can manage it better, I'm going to be okay. So the first gentleman we're going to meet, he loses everything, and he drinks. Totally makes sense to me. The guy breaks up with me, of course, I'm going to bid on a Saturday night. But Fred, we're going to be introduced to, has the best day in the world, not a cloud on the horizon, and he eats. And I think to myself, why the heck 
my eating when the relationship is going good? If I can control my environment? A very popular saying in my area is halt. Don't let yourself get too hungry, angry, lonely, and tired. That's a really good game plan. Unless, and I was going to take a survey. How many of you people, you people, how many out there have eaten when they're not hungry? How many people have eaten when they're happy? How many have eaten, eaten when, they're, when they're in the middle of a group? How many have eaten after a good night's sleep? If that is true for you, then halt means absolutely nothing. Because it's not the circumstances that I'm in. It's my brain and the allergy that is, is that vicious cycle of compulsive overeating. So if we go to that last paragraph on page 35, and we meet Fred, who's lost everything, says we told him what we knew about alcoholism, step one, and the answer we had found, step two, and he made a beginning, step three. A couple sentences down, all went well for a time, but he failed to enlarge his spiritual life. The way that I see that is that all of all for a time, because you know what, there is a freedom in the allergy not being triggered. I don't know if you thought you, but for me, I sleep a little bit better. I start to understand people better. Um, I'm not on the seven-second delay food fog. And I think, whoo, everything's great. God help me, I'm, I'm, I'm good. But the fact is, I haven't enlarged my spiritual life, so I've only addressed the allergy. So all went well for a time because he wasn't having the allergy. But because... He did not enlarge his spiritual life, which means he didn't do 4 through 12. He found himself drunk a half a dozen times in succession. And let's go to page 36. Everyone loves the squiggly writing. Suddenly the thought crossed my mind. Second paragraph, putting an ounce of whiskey in my milk, and it couldn't help me. I ordered another whiskey. I vaguely sensed. That, that suddenly to me is the white knuckling. I'm going to just white knuckle it, and then you never know when suddenly it's going to hit. Personally, I like to look at the paragraph before. What is going on with Fred, I mean with Jim, before this suddenly strikes him? Okay, so he says, yet he got drunk again. This is the first paragraph on page 36. We asked him to tell us exactly how it happened. This is his story. I came to work on Tuesday morning. I remember I felt irritated that I had to be a salesman for a concern I once owned. I had a few words with the boss, but nothing serious. So this is a guy who not only lost his business, he lost his family's business. I don't know about you. I wouldn't be irritated. I would be enraged. And that's how I am. I could be an absolute mess. And you could say, Kim, how are you? I'm fine. I'm fine. Masking all those emotions, pushing it all inside. He had a few words with the boss. Now, what I think of is maybe Fred said, F you. I used to own this business. You can't tell me what to do. How many times have I said I had a few words with my mother and I've cursed her out? This state of mind is starting to brew in him. He decided to drive into the country and see one of my prospects for a car. On the way, I felt hungry, so I stopped at a roadside place where they have a bar. No intention of drinking. I just thought I'd get a sandwich. I also had a notion I might find a customer for a car in this place, which is familiar for I've been going to it for years. I've eaten there many times during the months I was sober, I sat at the table and ordered a sandwich and a glass of milk. Still, no thought of drinking. I ordered another sandwich and decided to have another glass of milk. So a couple things come up for me with this. I can be in an Overeaters Anonymous meeting and I hear someone crying because they can't get out of the food and they're clutching their Dunkin' Donuts coffee mug. If you can't get out of the food, what are you doing getting your coffee and a Dunkin' Donuts? That's what he's saying. 
You know, I, I personally work at an auto auction, so I deal with a lot of used car salesmen. And I don't know, maybe Jersey's a little different, but I have never been in a bar, a restaurant, a coffee shop where a used car salesman comes up to me and says, hey, you want to buy a car? What is he going to show them? He's using that rationale to go out, to hang out in the bar, when he has no way of selling someone a car. And I often hear people say, look, he's having another sandwich. He's also a compulsive overeater. I don't see it that way. Once again, I don't know Jim, but what I see in there is my own experience of being in a Panera Bread. And I love tea. I have a cup of tea next to me right now. And I sit in that Panera Bread and they order one cup of tea and another cup of tea and another cup of tea and another cup of tea. And so finally I look at my watch and go, you know what? It's lunchtime. I might as well have the bagel. I don't like tea that much. I'm sitting in that Panera Bread drinking cup of tea after cup of tea until I have the excuse to have the bagel. And I think he's doing the same thing there. So if I'm only going to protect myself against the suddenly, which to me personally is, is tools, fellowship, fear, white-knuckled insanity, that's a miserable way to live. And that suddenly is going to take me down. But what if I can have some interceding in that thinking? What if I can get a power greater than myself that will get involved in that thinking that I never have to get to the suddenly? That's what the, the 12 steps offer me. And if we look at the top of page 37, it says, whatever the precise definition of the word may be, we call this plain insanity. I have to recognize that I am insane when it comes to the food. When it comes to my thinking, I am insane. If you look at the next paragraph, you may think this is an extreme case. To us, it is not far-fetched, for this kind of thinking has been characteristic of every single one of us. We have sometimes reflected more than Jim did upon the consequences, but there was always the curious mental phenomena that parallels with sound reasoning. There inevitably ran some insanely trivial excuse for taking that first drink. Our sound reasoning failed to hold us in check. The insane idea worn out. Next day, we would ask ourselves in all earnestness and sincerity how it could have happened. You know, I know we're told that we're liars a lot, but I have to tell you, you could hook me up to a lie detector test many times in my disease. I meant this time was going to be different. I meant when I got up in the morning that this was going to be a new day. I didn't understand. I didn't have the power to do it. So we've been now told we have an illusion, delusion, and insanity. You know, sometimes I hear in the rooms that we have a, we have a, a disease of denial. Well, if we have a disease of denial, that just means we know the truth. I didn't know the truth. I couldn't see. I couldn't differentiate the truth from the false. I'm told that I had a built-in forgetter. That's why I have to go to a lot of meetings so I can remember. Well, if my disease is a forgetter, then all I have to do is remember. And I'm being told here, I can't remember the consequences of a day or a month ago. And then it says I can't drink on the truth. I can only drink on the lie. I've got to tell you, I can drink no matter what. My brain is delusional. I am not. This is the way I think about it. I am like the schizophrenic who hears the voices. The voices are real in my head. You can't convince me otherwise. I am insane. Therefore, I cannot use a rational way to get out of this. I need a spiritual solution. I need a power greater than myself that's going to remove that delusion, remove that insanity, and remove that illusion because in and of myself, I don't have the power to do that. So now let's go into Fred. I love Fred. Oh, I love Fred. So Fred, on page 39, 
I'm trying to think where, where it is. Um, toward about five lines up from the bottom. Now, Ted is someone who hasn't lost everything. He's had some bouts with alcohol, partner in the accounting firm, kids are in good shape, marriages together. So about five, six lines up from the bottom. He made up his mind to quit drinking. It never occurred to him that perhaps he could not do so in spite of his character and standing. Fred would not believe himself an alcoholic. So, so Fred isn't even taking step one. At least Jim took steps one, two, and three. Fred was not even taking step one. And why is that? On page 40, about four lines down, he says he was positive that this humiliating experience plus the knowledge he had acquired could keep him sober the rest of his life. I don't know about you guys, but I used to try to eat my way to my bottom. I used to hope for humiliating experiences that would allow me not to eat again. I remember I worked at a 7-Eleven in college, and I leaned down, and my, my pants split open, and I had this long line. I had to call my dad to bring a bigger pair of pants. I knew I wouldn't eat again. I was eating two days later. You know, I remember being in college. I remember being in college where we had communal washing machines and I used to stand guard in front of the washing machine because the, the protocol was if, if the washing machine turned off and someone needed the next one, they could throw your clothes on top of there. And I was so scared someone would see the size of my underwear. That, would, that didn't stop me. So what is, what is Jim, I mean, Fred's game plan since he, he doesn't have the spiritual solution? He doesn't even admit he has a problem. So if we go down to the next paragraph, um, second, it says he's absolutely convinced he had to stop drinking and he had no excuse for drinking. So things are going Fred's way. So the next paragraph, which is the second full paragraph, let him tell you about it. I was much impressed with what you fellows said about alcoholism, and I frankly did not believe it would be possible for me to eat again. I rather appreciated your ideas about the subtle insanity which precedes the first drink, but I was confident it could not happen to me after what I had learned. I reasoned I was not so far advanced as most of you fellows, that I had been usually successful in licking my other personal problems, and I would therefore be successful where you men failed. I felt I had every right to be self-confident, that it would only be a matter of exercising my willpower and keeping on guard. You know, when I read that, first of all, my mom's been an Overeaters Anonymous for 40 years, and I came in at 27, and I'm much smarter than my mother. Yeah, my mom might have to do this step, but you know, I appreciate that, but, you know, I just need to go in there, learn a couple tricks of the trade, and I'm good. I can just use willpower and keeping on guard. And that was his game plan. That was my game plan for years. Three meetings a week, three phone calls a day. If I'm feeling a little bit shaky, maybe go to that fourth meeting. You know, um, in my area, service is slimming, so I would be the intergroup chair. I would keep myself so busy so I didn't have time to eat. Exhausting way to live, but it worked for a period of time. I still remember, too, <clears throat> there was a meeting I, I spoke at, and they gave out coins, and there was a woman who got her 30-day coin, and her sponsor was saying what a good little sponsee she was and mentioned all the tools and everything that she did, committing her food, calling her every day, um, making, uh, making her phone calls, and the girl got up, very mild woman, and she said, I'm almost embarrassed to take this. I have so many of these at home. I've been in a way for... I think it was 10 years, and I've never gotten a 60-day coin. Why is that? 
Not even that we can get 30 days using willpower and keeping on guard, but we can't get to that 60 days. Or maybe we get to 60, we can't get to 90. Maybe we get to 90, we can't get to six months. Why is that? Because we're not treating the mental obsession with the tools. We're not treating the mental obsession with willpower and keeping on guard. So then we, the, he, um, Fred goes out and he has the perfect day. I love the language that Bill uses on page 41. The last, couple, last sentence, about five, six lines down, it was the end of a perfect day, not a cloud on the horizon. And then we're going to see in that next paragraph, I'm not going to read it, but there's, there's words like suddenly in there. It's saying, the thought crossed my mind. It struck me. It was, a, you know, I decided to take, you know, all these, these words, these, these words, there was nothing more at all. I just need, this is my thing. I didn't go out to binge towards the end. I just needed to get the edge off. I need to get the anxiety off. I need to get the, the uncomfortability off. And that's what he's saying there. Those thoughts crossed his mind. And he had that highball, and he had a shadow recollection of the next couple days. And he gets back in the hospital. And I just want to say to sort of intercede for a second. This is great sponsoring information, too, for those of you that are sponsoring. They got, these guys present the material, and Jim and Fred are not interested in a spiritual solution, and they leave them alone. Leave them alone. And when they get drunk again, they don't come and say, okay, Jim, what was our last conversation? Oh, we got you up to step four? Let's start at step four. They go back and they say, let's review step one. Because if we don't get that we're powerless, we're not going to have the acumen to do the rest of the steps. This is just another good example of sponsoring when we look at Jim and Fred. So if we go down to the bottom of page 41, we talk a lot about um, we talk a lot about promises in this program. So I'm going to show you some promises. It says, as soon as I regain my ability to think, so once again, stressing that alcohol has to be down, the food has to be down for us to do any of this work. I went carefully over that evening in Washington. Not only had I been off guard, that was his game plan, right? Little power and keep it on guard. I had made no fight whatsoever against that first drink. This time, I had no thought of the consequences at all. I commenced to drink as carelessly as though the cocktails were ginger ale. I mean, that's the idea that we rationalize. Well, you know, whatever your allergy is, well, it's just got a little bit of X, Y, and Z in it. It's the healthy form. One of my, my good friends in, in, in Overeaters Anonymous, I love it. She's, we both are Catholic school kids. And she told me how one of her binges started because her sisters went to a, a convent in New York and they bought bread, which has her binge foods in it. They bought bread that were made by nuns. And she looked at the ingredients and two of the ingredients were love and kindness. And she thought to herself, oh my God, how can there be problem eating bread if the ingredients are love and kindness? As carelessly as though it was ginger ale. It doesn't matter if it's, if it's from the the high-end uh, you know, grocery store, or if it's in a fancy restaurant, if it includes our binge foods, our ingredients, or part of our behaviors, we cannot have them because our body doesn't care why it's ingested. It just knows it's been ingested and it's going to have that biological reaction. Continuing with the text, I now remember what my, my alcoholic friends had told me, how they prophesied, prophesied, here's the promise, prophesied, if I had an alcoholic mind, the time and place would come that I would drink again. They had said that though I did raise a defense, to me that means changing sponsors, changing my food plan, maybe going to some extra meetings, um, making extra phone calls. 
It would one day give way before some trivial reason for having a drink. Well, just that did happen, and for me, what I had learned of alcoholism did not occur to me at all. I knew from that moment that I had an alcoholic mind. I saw that willpower and self-knowledge would not help in those strange mental blind spots. I had never been able to understand people who said that a problem had them hopelessly defeated. I knew then it was a crushing blow. So that's, that's the, the submission, a crushing blow. He is now conceding that he has the same problem that these guys have, that I'm beyond human aid. So the next paragraph, two of the members of Alcoholics Anonymous came to see me. They grinned, which I didn't like so much, and they asked me, now, ifs are conditions, if I thought myself an alcoholic and if I was really lit this time. So for those of you who are maybe white-knuckling it one bite away today or not doing step work or maybe you guys that are in the food, this is some good, good time. Spend some time with this. Whatever works for you. Call some people, have discussions, maybe do some writing about it, whatever, whatever works for you and your personality. And ask yourself, do you believe yourself an alcoholic? Do you believe you have the allergy to the body? Or do you think the fact that you can still kind of have yellow food, which they call it, or maybe I can occasionally have something? And do you believe you have the mental obsession? Do you believe you need to do all 12 steps absolutely in order and make a day of living? Or do you think you can treat the steps like a panic button and only do it when things get bad? And it's as if you were really lit this time. You know, this is my opinion, but I believe that 12-step programs in general have watered down one day at a time to white-knuckling our food. So I don't ask people, are you willing to put the food down today? That's what you're going to have to do in practical terms. But the question I ask them is, are they done? Do they get that they can never, ever, ever, ever have those foods again? That first six years that I had white-knuckled abstinence, the way I got through it was tomorrow I can have a bagel, tomorrow I can have a bagel, tomorrow I can have a bagel, just not today, tomorrow I'm going to have a bagel. And I was able to do that for six years, but it was a miserable way to live that tomorrow I can have a bagel. There was this sense of, oh, when I said, I am done, I cannot do this, I cannot live with the food, I cannot live without the food, I cannot get drunk, I cannot get sober, I am done. So it says, I had to concede both propositions. So once again, that's part of it, conceding both propositions. They piled up on me heaps of evidence that the effect of an alcoholic mentality, such as I had exhibited in Washington, was a hopeless condition. They cited cases out of their own experience by the dozen. This process snuffed out the last flicker of conviction that I could do the jobs myself. So I have to tell you, for many years, and I'm going to be wrapping up, many years, I thought step one said don't drink. But when I studied these chapters in order with someone whom, whom the problem had been solved, what I learned is step one is you're going to drink, you're going to drink, you're going to drink, unless you have a spiritual um, experience. And that step one is simply a conclusion. I don't work step one. If I work step one anywhere, it's in the fast food restaurants or in the back of parking lots. That's where I work up step one. And if I don't come to that full conclusion, I don't see the necessity to do, to do the steps. And I had to recognize specifically with this chapter, when I was powerless over food, dash, my life is unmanageable. What I thought for years, years that was one big sentence, that my life is unmanageable because of my food. And what I saw in this paragraph, I mean this chapter, was I am a stone cold sober and my life is unmanageable. If I don't get the fact that my life is unmanageable sober, 
then I'm not going to feel the need to do this work. My real problem is I don't do sobriety well. I don't do abstinence well. And I need a solution for that abstinence. Otherwise, I'm going to go back to the steps. Because what happens with me when I get abstinent is life gets loud. And the longer I'm abstinent, the louder life gets. And the only way I've ever known to shut up that that stuff in my head is by picking up the food. So I am down to two alternatives at this point. I'm either going to pick up the food or pick up the steps. Pick up the food or pick up the steps. So I'm going to end with the last paragraph of this chapter, which summarizes this. Once more, the alcoholic at certain times has no effective, effective. If you are in Wolverine's Anonymous, like me, in relapse over and over and over, I had to concede what I was doing was not effective, has no effective mental defense against the first drink, except in a few rare cases, neither he nor any other human being can provide such a defense. His defense must come from a higher power. And thanks, everyone, for listening. Thank you, Kim, for bringing Chapter Life, Chapter 3, more about alcoholism to life uh, with such great clarity and insight. We thank you so much for your service here on A Vision for You. Kim's contact information will be given at the conclusion of the recording, so stay tuned for that. And now... We're going to have a question and answer segment. If you have a question for Kim, please press star 1 to unmute. Introduce yourself, including the first letter of your last name, please. This is Anne Marie M. Anne Marie M. Hold on one second. Who else? Ruth, Ruth M. Ruth M. Anyone else? Lonnie P. I didn't catch that. Lonnie P. Lonnie P. Excellent. Let's start with these three. Anne-Marie, go ahead, please. Good morning, um, Leah and Kim. Thank you so much, both of you, for your um, service. And, um, Kim, you've been always so helpful. Um, There was one time that uh, you explained about not eating foods, not not making up foods that look like your binge foods, and you said it so much better than I can ever explain, and I'd love to be able to pass that on to my, my fellows that are, are having a difficult time, and, um, you know, for me, um, anything, anything hand-picked like, you know, peanuts, chips, all that kind of stuff, um, I can't have, and, and I know many fellows, they don't, they stay away from it, however, they make foods that mimic that. And I know, um, I don't know if you remember, but you, you explained to me how, you know, it's not very helpful to have foods that mimic your binge foods. And I was wondering if you could explain that. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks, Anne-Marie. I think the main thing is we have to eliminate all foods, ingredients, and behaviors that create the effect. So what I personally did, if I wasn't getting the effect from my, as Larry puts, my heroin, what I would do is I would try to create that same effect by creating a food with pretty crappy ingredients in most cases that looked like, so I call them lookalikes. Like I, you know, I, one of my binge foods is flour, so I don't eat um, pancakes, and that was a big thing I love was pancakes. So I would take all these ingredients and try to make something look like a pancake. 
And I get a charged up, excited feeling because I'm chasing the effect I got with the pancakes. So I don't know if it's a matter of you have to avoid lookalikes, but you have to avoid all those things that create that phenomenon of craving, all those things that create the effect. And what I found for myself personally is the more that my disease progressed and I wasn't addressing it, the more that my brain and my body would try to create the effect in other foods. So I think it's, you know, my, my personal opinion is I would just talk to them about the effect. And if they're trying to create that effect by having foods that are similar, they're going to have to abstain from that too because you cannot get the effect from the steps if you're still getting the effect from the food. Does that make sense? Yes, that's exactly, you said it so much better. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you, Anne-Marie. Ruth M., your turn. Star one, ton. Can you hear me? We can, yes. Okay, this is Ruth M., and I. my question was kind of like the... the um, first person that asked. Um, I I am a real compulsive overeater, and I thank you, Kim, so much for bringing this chapter to life like that for me. Um, I am in a desperate situation, and um, I, you know, and I've never heard before that you, um, if you're a real compulsive overeater, you have to find a real compulsive overeater for a sponsor. Um, thank you for that information. And also, I have a problem identifying my binge foods because my not or the foods that give me problems because I'm that compulsive overeater and I have that obsession of the mind. I know that I have the allergy of the body. I know that I have that obsession of the mind. You know, and I, and that obsession of the mind is just what drives me crazy. You know, I am trying so hard not to substitute with food, and that's what I I find myself doing. I I've been relapsing for almost twenty years, off and on. I had straight back to back abstinence for about eighteen months, and that's that abstinence that's like, and, and I was miserable. I was stock raving mad. I was Ruth, still unhappy. Ruth, I, I relate to you completely, <laughs> but do you have a question this morning for us? Um, yeah, well, my I didn't really have a question, but my question, I do have a question. I would love Kim to be my sponsor. <laughs> That's all. All right, well, let's, we'll deal with that off the line. How about that, okay? Okay. All right, Ruth, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Well, I, I do want to address some of the stuff she's saying, if you don't mind. Of course. Go you ahead. Know, you know, what I'm hearing you say, Ruth, too, is, and I, this is mimicking my own experience, like Leia was saying, was is having a hard time identifying those foods. Is That's one of the reasons I love on a vision for you that, and they say, why do people just offer to take someone through the doctor's opinion? Why do they just do that? That's the service of that. You know, you come into an AA meeting, you know what sobriety is. You come into an LA meeting, you're told to put down the food, but you're not sure what that means. So I would take advantage of the fact that people are offering after the, the meeting to take people through the doctor's opinion because it is difficult for me to see. I cannot differentiate the truth from the false. Now, ultimately, I do know what those binge foods are because I am gravitating towards them, but I would encourage you to find someone who's willing to do that with you. 
I'm going to use yeah. part of the doctor's this story, that idea of, the, of uh, going into the local pantry and stopping abruptly. I always think of this story. My favorite food by far is a tomato. Love, love tomatoes. If you had said to me, Kim, I'm going to give you $100,000 if you have one tomato every single day, no more, no less for 30 days, I would be able to do that easily and make $100,000. If you had said to me, Kim, I want you to have two slices of pizza every day for 30 days, no more, no less, and I'll give you a million dollars, I would never make that money. There's something different about pizza, for me it's the flour, that makes it impossible for me to reasonably predict how much I'm going to have. I know that to my core. If you ask me those questions, even though I keep thinking to myself, well, you know, you know, pizzas have tomatoes, so really maybe a pizza's not a problem, because if I can have a tomato and stuff, but I can't have a pizza, eh, it's all confusing. I, I need someone to help guide me to those answers. The other thing is I had to recognize for myself, since nobody helped me define that in Overeaters Anonymous, that some of my abstinence really wasn't abstinence, it was controlled eating. Because I had periods where I was, not, I was eating what I considered a reasonable amount with the help of the fellowship, and I was saying I was abstinent because I was losing weight. So there's a difference between controlled eating and abstinence, and that's why it's so important mm. to get a recovered compulsive reader who has neutrality around their food because it's not about you eating like your sponsor. A, sp a recovered person has neutrality around their food so they can help you identify what your food is, which is why, once again, my opinion, I think it's so essential that you have someone that's recovered. And I, once again, my opinion, that's one of the reasons I believe we have a lot of sex of OA because people don't, aren't recovered. They don't have neutrality around the food, so they, are, they create meetings that eat exactly like each other because they're terrified to be around mm. people that eat differently than them. And if you happen to walk into a meeting like that and your allergy is just like them, that's incredible, how, how wonderful that is. But if you walk into a meeting and their allergy is different than yours, you're just going to wind up dying because you're going to be eating like them while you're still ingesting your binge foods, wondering why you keep, quote, unquote, relapsing, as opposed to maybe you're having controlled eating, uncontrolled eating, controlled eating, uncontrolled eating. Does that make sense? Yes. Very much so. Can you hear me? I can hear you. Thanks for the question, Ruth. Thank you, Ruth. Lonnie P. Lonnie P. Star one tut mute. Hi, it's Lonnie. Thank you. Um, my question is, Basically, I'm kind of long stories of Jim. Um, things might be going well, um, and then I don't even realize it, and suddenly a thought crosses my mind, and I plant a seed, and um, I end up stopping at the store and picking up something I have no business picking up. You know, how do I keep from picking up? How do I keep? How do I keep my binge foods down when I'm just trying to get abstinent again? You know, Lana, that's kind of what we're saying, that you have to be done. You know, you know, one of my favorite prayers going through the steps is, God, help me to feel comfortable about feeling uncomfortable. Because you're going to have to be willing to be uncomfortable. And I had to look at my own experience again, too, Lonnie. Um, I mentioned I was Catholic before. I could give up chocolate during Lent. So I have the ability to white-knuckle it for a certain amount of time. You know, I've done a lot of diet programs where they've told me for 30 days I have to do something, and I've been able to do it. 
So we have to realize that, that I can't tell you how to put the food down. What I can do is, give, is present with you the material that when you get to step 12, the miracle is you're not going to want that food. But that miracle doesn't occur until you get through the 12 steps. So whatever you have to do to create a cocoon around yourself, you know, for me personally, I had to know there were certain times of the day I was more vulnerable, and that's when I would schedule, you know, phone calls. And, and, and I talk a lot about the tools because the tools support us while we're going through the steps. They're not a long-term solution. But I need to lean into my fellowship. I need to lean into, into going to meetings that carry the solution. I need to lead, lead in, into writing if that works for you or whatever that is because I need to have that support. But that support in and of itself is not going to keep me from eating. So I need that support to do the steps. If I'm just trying to do that support without doing the steps, I'm a ticking time bomb. But unfortunately, there's nothing that anyone can do for you. If you, if you are not done, if you are not willing to sit through that uncomfortability and work the steps as if you, your hair was on fire, as I hear, keep hearing people say now, and I think to myself, you know, if I go to the store and they don't have my peanut M&Ms, what am I doing? I'm going to the next store. And if they don't have it, I'm going to the next store. You hear so many stories about people driving 40, 80 miles to get their favorite binge foods. Am I going to, willing to go to any lengths for the spiritual experience the same way I was willing to go to any lengths for the food? Because once again, treating the allergy is not enough if you're a compulsive overeater of the type described in this book. Abstinence is so painful. Abstinence yeah. is the reason I need the food. So I need something to substitute for abstinence, and that is a spiritual awakening. And unfortunately, no one, can, no one can give that to you in the sense, make that happen for you. All we can do is give you the tools, and it's what you do, not you know, like the tools or the steps. It, all we can do is give you that spiritual toolkit. It's what you do with that spiritual toolkit, because my experience will not keep you abstinent or get you recovered. You have to have your own experience. Thank you. Thanks, Lonnie. Who else has a question for Kim this morning? Star one touch. Leah D. Leah D. Who else? Jen R. Jen R. Matt M. Matt M. Who else? Great opportunity to ask a question. Denisa R. Janisa, am I hearing that correctly? Yes. Okay, Janisa R. All right, let's go with that. Leia D. Everybody else mute, please. Leia D, your turn. Thank you, thank you Leia, for your service. Can I be heard? You can. Oh, thank you, Kim G. My head hurts. I feel like the little puppy in the car. My head is going up and down and up and down. And I am you, you are me. And I have a question of what to say to that sponsor who thinks she's done, every day she's done, and every other day she picks up. And the pain I have is not wanting to reject, but to share strength, hope, and experience. And what are the words, Kim G? I, don't, I, I know what it is to be in pain and to think that the sponsor has the answer, but the sponsor doesn't have the answer at all. The only answer is the steps in God. And maybe, maybe Joe and Charlie, but that's okay. I'm being flipped. But it hurts me because they're picking up, and I don't have the answer. I need a few words, Kim G. What do you think? No, my, I always suggest people, Leah, that if, when you're in this situation is to reread 
working with others. 89 to 97 tells us specifically what to do. If someone is not, is not willing to keep the food down, our job is to leave them alone because they will not learn that they are, they are powerless if we're supporting them in their, in, in their picking up. Now, what I often do is no right answer to this, so what I always do is I often reread that. I'll get into meditation, and my one question to my higher power is, can I be useful to this person? And if someone keeps picking up, am I really being useful? Am I stopping them from going to the teacher that might be able to tell them something in a different way that they're going to be able to hear it? I have to realize I can't save everybody. All I can do is be available. And I want to separate this because sometimes people, I hear people go, no, well, that's mean, blah, blah, blah. I'm talking about sponsoring somebody. You know, it's not like if somebody's in the food and they're in pain, but I don't talk to them. Absolutely, let's, let's talk to people. But I can't present the solution and help them go through the steps until they're done. So my job is to keep slamming home step one. Maybe, maybe offer to take that person through that chapter. What I, this is me again personally. What I do is if someone picks up through that step process, if I get quiet, I ask if I can be useful, and I'll give them an assignment. Okay, go back, do, the, do more about alcoholism, listen to this special recording, call three to five people, ask them what their par- favorite paragraph is, call me and tell me what you learned. Half the time they call me, half the time they don't. You know, they need to be willing to do the work in order for me to help them. I can't be more invested in their recovery than they are. And I think again, once again, what happened with Jim and Fred? These guys did not chase them down. They left them alone when they didn't want, mm-hmm. they didn't want the message. And, but what happened when they were in the hospital and needed help? People went there. And it's not even the same person. This is where I get my arrogance, you know. They didn't say the people that helped Fred went back to the same exact people went to the hospital. It just said two members of AA. And in fact, from the way he acted, it probably wasn't the same two people. So I have to get my red cape off and think I can save everybody. My job as a recovered person is to give an adequate representation with this book. And what people choose to do with that information is not my fault. I mean, not my fault, not, not my responsibility. So I would just say get into meditation with your higher power, read what those clear-cut directions are, and don't get in the way of someone's step one experience that they need to have in order to be done. Thanks, Kim G. And thank you, Leah D., for the question. Jen R., Hi, Kim. It's uh, Jen, our colleague. And uh, I'm hearing a lot of um, people who say after they've picked up that they're not going to beat themselves up about it. Today is a new day. And um, I've even had sponsors say this to me. And I'm not sure that I, – I don't encourage them to think that way, but I don't know if I'm on the right track. Um, what, what would you say to, to a sponsor or someone you're talking with who says, oh, I picked up yesterday, but I'm not going to beat myself up about it? And that's all my question. Thanks. Thanks, Jen. Um, I miss you, Jen, so I'm missing you. Um, I'm very results-driven, and my observation is when people do that, the results are they keep relapsing. So it's, I haven't seen that work with a lot of people. The, the, the spiritual life is telling us we need to take this seriously. You know, my job is to let them know this is a life-and-death errand, and I treat it like that. I am more concerned about saving someone's life than hurting their feelings. And if they're a real compulsive overeater and I say, well, okay, just start over again. You know, that's, uh, that's wonderful. Don't beat yourself up. I might be, I might, the next time I might see them might be at their viewing. I mean, that's, that's just the reality of our disease. So, you know, I think of, um, I'm going to go to page, I'm going to let the big book say it actually. 
On page 92, um, the last paragraph, continue to speak of alcoholism as an illness of fatal malady. Talk about the conditions of mind and body which accompany it. Keep his attention focused mainly on your personal experience. Explain that many are doomed who never realize their predicament. Doctors may rightly loathe to tell alcoholic patients the whole story unless it will serve some good purpose, but you may talk to him about the hopelessness of alcoholism because you offer a solution. And because I know you personally, Jen, you're, you're like me, man. You've relapsed millions of times in this program, too. You don't need to tell someone, don't, you know, uh, don't do that. Tell them what happened when you did that. Tell them what it was like when you tried to be complacent or very um, not paying attention. Oh, it's no big deal. I can just, you know, it's, it's another day. I'm just going to do that. Use your own experience to explain it's a fatal malady, that the, the hours of the body is never going to go, that the mental torture that's going to go in there, that you are doomed if you're a real compulsive overeater. And it's not mean to do that. Why? Because, Jen, you offer a solution. You're not going to leave them there. But until they know they're doomed, they're not going to want to do anything. So to me, it's, it's not about telling someone what to do. I use my own experience to say, you know, if that works for you, great. But let me tell you what happened when I did that. Let me tell you what the consequences were when I thought I could, quote, unquote, get back on track. And if they are the compulsive of the type, they're going to be curious to know why you no longer have to do that. I hope that helps. Thank you, Jen. Yes, thanks, Kim. I appreciate it. Madam. Hi, Leah. Can you hear me? Yes. Hi, thank you for your service. Thank you, Kim, for your wonderful presentation on more about alcoholism. The question I have for you is, what do you do when you're abstinent for those first few days or first week where it's, like, so hard and the pain is so hard of the withdrawal? I'm struggling with that. I'm abstinent for a few days and I pick up because it's so difficult to deal with those feelings that come up. Um, what do you do with those feelings? I mean, that's, that's the reality. We're going to have to go through withdrawal. My suggestion is you've got to immerse yourself in this work. You've got to immerse yourself in this step one information. You know, I, 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 uh, I go to AA meetings even though I'm not an alcoholic. Um, and the reason I'm saying is there's really no food rehabs around my area or probably in the country. But these AA people who go to these rehabs, they talk about the fact that they go into the rehabs because they want the people that are in withdrawal. They want the person that's coming off a run. They want to try to find that lucid interval. Because if they come two weeks into treatment or 28 days when they're leaving, the allergy is gone and they don't, they don't need a sponsor. Their wife's letting them back in the house. Their boss is letting them back at the job. They don't need anybody. The time that you're most willing is when you're in pain and you're going through withdrawal. So take advantage of that time is what I want to tell you, is to immerse yourself in the material. You don't wait till you're detoxed and you're, and you're past that point to work the steps. I heard an AA speaker say once, you know, when do you start the steps? He said, as soon as you stop throwing up. So you're going to, I would immerse yourself in this material, be calling people, ask them what their favorite paragraph is. When you're reading it, Matt, what are you balking at? What are you thinking, no, that's not me. I'm different. I don't need to do that. And then call people and ask them to talk to you about it because, once again, that, you have to fully concede. Wherever you think you're not like that is exactly where your mental twist is going to come in. So my suggestion is if you're going to put this, I don't know where you're at right now, but if you want to put the food down today, immediately get into this work. And that's what I do personally. I, I take someone to the doctor's opinion. I assume they're eating, kind of going back to roost information, that fact that they may be eating stuff not realizing they're allergic to it, 
And as soon as they agree to put all that down 100%, I make an appointment in a couple days so that we can, and I give them an assignment. So by the time I talk to them, maybe they have 24, 48 hours, and we are, boom, going. But as soon as, they, as we finish talking, they're in that work so that they can start focusing on the solutions versus focusing on, focusing on trying to control the problem. I hope that's helpful. Thank you. It is. Thank you so much. Thanks, Matt. Janisa R., your turn. Hi, can you hear me? Yes, very well. Okay, so it's Denisa. I'm, I'm up to step 10. I pray, but I feel that my prayers are not eternalized enough. How or what can I do to get the spirit, uh, spiritual experience? Um, yeah, what can I do to get the spiritual experience? Okay, so you're on, you're on step 10, Janisa? Yes, yes. Okay, have, were you abstinent the entire time that you were doing the steps? No. Okay. That's that's why you're not feeling step ten. You have to be abstinent the entire time. So if you pick up during that step time, you gotta go back to step one and review. I'm not saying you have to go back with the intensity, but you gotta go back and review that material. And I and I'm not even telling you this as my experience, you're telling me this from your own experience. Because yeah. if you're at step ten and not feeling those ten step promises, that's the number one thing I ask people. There are promises throughout the book. So if I'm not feeling those fifth step promises, I shouldn't be going past the fifth step. If I'm not feeling those ninth, well, ninth step and ten kind of are kind of concurrent. But I need to I need to put these these food down and walk through each of the steps totally abstinent. Do people pick up? Absolutely. But what you have to do is what we just saw here with Jim and Fred. You saw that Jim made it through step three. Did those guys come back and say, okay, let's do your fourth step? No, they went back and they reviewed step one with him. So my suggestion is talk to your sponsor, go back to the step one material, see what, where you're not conceding, and that's going to give you, I mean, when you fully do step one, at least my experience sponsoring, and when you fully concede to your innermost self how screwed you are, the fact that I can't eat safely and I can't stay absent and contently, which is the one that really scared me, so I thought absence was the answer for years, I am propelled in my powerlessness. I am propelled to step two and seek a power. I don't even give a crap what that power is. I just know I need something. If I start bartering the power, it's probably because I don't, I don't know I'm powerless. If I'm balking at the decision of step three, it's probably because I don't understand I need a power. Does that make sense? Because each step builds on the next. It propels you to the next step. And the first thing that's going to propel us is we have to get abstinent and stay abstinent while working the steps. Okay, yes. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Janisa. Who else has a question this morning for Kim? Star one to unmute and announce yourself, please. Monica. Gladys L. Susan K. Okay, Denise Okay, this is who I have. I have a Monica. I didn't catch the first letter of your last name. Then I have Gladys, I have Susan K, I have Dana W, but I missed somebody after Monica. Tony W. Tony. And who who else is trying to get in? Denise H. I'm not catching the first name. I'm so sorry. Denise? Denise. Okay, thanks for your patience, Denise. Okay, so we're going to go Monica, Tony, Denise, 
Gladys, Susan K., and Dana W. Okay, Monica, go ahead. Hi, Leah. Thank you so much for your service. And Kim, thank you for your service. Um, I am in program, and I had a sponsor who definitely identified in and was working the steps, you know, um, she really did work the steps. <laughs> and now she's not in program and she's doing okay. And I just felt lost. Like, how is it that she identified in? It wasn't like she was just doing meetings or just doing the tools or doing meetings in the tools and not doing this. She was doing the steps. And now she's not in program and she's doing okay. If she didn't identify and find that she did, she has the physical addiction, the mental obsession. How is this possible? I don't know. You know, I have to tell you, all I know, all I know is I need this program and I need this spiritual experience. Um, like I said, there could, she, could, she could be a hard eater and identify in with, with certain aspects of the disease. And once again, we talked about that man of 30. He stayed sober for 25 years. Who knows if this person is going to, in 10 years, pick up and be worse than ever just the way the man of 30 is. But I wouldn't worry about what your sponsor, um, her experience is. You have to know what your experience is. Yeah, no, so if your experience is you, you, I'm sorry? I'm saying it makes me feel shaky. Like, it's, it makes me, I don't know why. I feel like I'm questioning it now, even though I know it works for me. I have to do this. But then there's that little, like, maybe voice in my head that's like, hmm, maybe you don't have to do this, even if you're a real compulsive eater. And it's silly. You know, I know that's not the case. I know that's not the case for me. I, and this is, I'm just going to use my own experience, Monica, is, is I can't get too dependent on a sponsor. I'm, the sponsor is supposed to help you get in touch with the power. And I think sometimes we can over-identify in the sponsors. And I always think of Bill and Abby. You know, Abby gave this message to Bill. Bill had a spiritual awakening. He goes to, um, he goes to Akron is with Bob, and he gets a, a missive or I don't know, like a, a thing from Lois saying that, that Abby picked up. And if Bill thought his sobriety was based on Ebby. We wouldn't have Alcoholics Anonymous. Ebby got sober again, and from what I hear, he died sober. But if Ebby, if Bill thought his sobriety was was based on what Ebby was doing, we wouldn't have AA. So to me, you know, that's one of the reasons I think it's important. I can be friendly with with people who are hard eaters and and you know people who've been in program and are out and maybe maybe maybe. And this is the other thing, Monica. I do not believe that God is only contained in this first 164 pages. I don't. My God is much bigger than that. But it's what works for me. So if maybe someone can go to a church and have a spiritual awakening and take care of their food, I don't know. All I know is that I need these 12 steps. I need the directions that are clear-cut in this book. And that um, I need to be around people who have that same passion for it. So I need to my, – my, I think it's 10, 11, and 12 very simply. Step 10 is my daily contact with recovered people. So I need people in my life who have recovered through these steps that I can, that I can utilize for my 10 steps as well as support. Step 11 is I have to have my daily contact with my higher power. And step 11 is I have to have daily contact with the still suffering. So it doesn't mean I, you know, I go into an LA room and I can you know, be judgmental as anybody that this person is not a real compulsive overeater or this is BS that they're doing. That's fine. But I need to create that fellowship I crave around me but if I get overly dependent on one person, and the reality is that we have such a low recovery rate, most, most of the people I know who are my spiritual mentors, a lot of them, their sponsors, have relapsed or died. 
That's just the reality of our disease. So I like to have a community around me that is supportive of this way of life because this is what I need. And I don't worry about what other people need. In fact, my mother, who is an incredible recovered woman, doesn't do the big book at all. She used, she came in in the 70s and used Al-Anon material because there was no AA material. That's how she recovered. She supports me in what I do. I support her in what, what she does. We, it, it's not at all, um, you know, dep- we, don't, we don't have to agree with each other to celebrate how each of us recover. Does that make sense? Yes, thank you. Thank you very much. Tony, your turn. Yes, this is Tony W. from South Carolina. Uh, Kim and Leah, thank you both for your service. Kim, you mentioned that you um, give an assignment immediately when the person is starting to put the food down. And I wondered if you would be willing to share what that assignment is. Um, that, that's not that's a personal assignment, so I don't share that on the line, because I think that each of us um, has different things that we might do individually, but basically my assignment is the big book. I start at the doctor's opinion, and I bring people right through the chapter working with others. And my personality is such that I do it in a certain way. Other people's personalities are such that they do it in another way. So I think that, you know, we, we need to, when we recover, we've got to ask God into what are our talents, what worked for us, and then we, we carry that same thing on to our sponsees. And I have to tell you, as a sponsor, I love watching how my sponsees differ from me. I love to see the way they carry the, the same message, but God utilizing their talents in a certain way. So, um, you know, to me, the assignment is the work. I have just found certain types of assignments work better. If you want to call me one-on-one, I can share that with you. But to me, the, the assignment is the 12 steps, the clear-cut directions that are in this book. And it's one page builds on the next page. Thank you. Thank you, Tony. Denise H., your turn. Uh, this is Denise H. in Tennessee. You're up. Okay. Uh, first of all, I would like to thank Kim for her uh, wonderful combination of God-given wisdom and your New Jersey toughness and your sincere compassion. I, I really enjoy listening to you very much. Um, I have a question about... Uh, Acquiring a sponsor or working with a sponsor initially, I've had mixed um, experiences, and uh, I, I really aspire to learn the method that's used by those who are successful in recovering from this disease through the Vision for You uh, model. And yet, I have. Um, tried to work with different sponsors and and they kind of give me other things to do like you know I want you to read this book first and do these exercises first and and so I'm concerned that I need to be able to um, to work concisely through the steps through the big book and so I guess my question for you is what should a new member's expectations be when initially working with a sponsor because I know the sponsor is not the answer so I want to be able to either 
stick with the sponsor or release the sponsor at my choice. So what would your recommendation be in terms of expectations? Thank you. Thank you, Denise. Um, first of all, there is no such thing as a vision for you model of sponsoring. Vision for you is simply an Overeaters Anonymous meeting that believes in the big book. So there's no such thing as a vision for you way of going through the steps. We all just agree that the steps are contained in the first 164 pages. Um, you know, I, I remember hearing this at an AA meeting. He, the guy said, you know, I think it's really funny that when you're looking for a sponsor, you have this really, um, you know, big interview process. But when you need crack, you're going to go to whoever the local, local guy is in the corner and take what he has. So I needed this message more than I needed to have a perfect sponsor. You know, um, I need someone that's recovered and whom the problem has been solved. So I simply would ask them two questions. Did you accidentally go through all 12 steps? And have you had a spiritual awakening as a result of the steps? And I still remember, um, I can't remember, I think it was Amy G said in one of the special editions that her recovery began when she went from yeah, but to yes, ma'am. And that if someone asks you to do something that maybe you don't feel comfortable with, do it anyways. If someone has had a spiritual awakening, it's not going to hurt you to do an assignment that maybe you don't feel is exactly what you think it should be. And that you, that it, this is not about your sponsor's experience. It's about your experience. And this book has clear-cut direction. And I'll just, I'm just going to say this real quickly because I know there's other people that might ask questions. But for me personally, I didn't have a sponsor when I went through the steps. I, I had broken my ankle. I was on disability in the middle of a five-year relapse. I, somebody gave me a phone number. I'd never been on a phone meeting before. Called in this phone, phone meeting. I heard the truth. I heard the definition of a real compulsive overeater, and I got scared because, holy God, I've been in LA for 17 years and never knew what a compulsive overeater was. And I needed this, and I was on disability for a short period of time. And I'm like, if I don't do this now, I'm not going to be able to do this once I go back to work. So I used this phone meeting, and because I was in bedridden, I would you know, listen to two or three shares and, and then fast forward to, to, to the next paragraph and listen to two or three shares. And I was listening to meeting after meeting, and then I would call four or five, six recovered people a day. Say, I don't understand this. I was told I had a three-fold illness. What do you mean I have a two-fold illness? What do you mean meeting makers don't make it? I had so many prejudices that I had to confront. Nobody could sponsor me but everybody answered my questions. And when I got to the fourth step, I called a local person who I knew was recovered, and I said, can you listen to my fifth step? I can't get out of bed. Can you listen to it over the phone? I did my fifth step in a couple weeks. We did five, six, seven, eight, all in one day. I had made enough connections with people that at step nine I could ask people for direction, started learning 10, 11, 12, and started sponsoring, and went through the steps in six weeks without a sponsor. Did I do it alone? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. But I need, it was my hunger for this experience that it didn't matter that I didn't have an individual sponsor. So, so my suggestion to you is stop trying to interview sponsors and just do what someone who's recovered say. Ask them if they absolutely went through all 12 steps. Ask them if they've had a spiritual awakening. If they say no to either of those, I would go to somebody else. But if they say yes to both, to say, what do I have to do? And then your work not what she tells you to do. Your work is going to create the experience that you need to have a spiritual awakening. Thank you so much. Thank you, Denise. Gladys, your turn. 
Good morning. Can you hear me? Yes. Oh, hi. Uh, my name is Gladys, Compulsive Overeater. Thank you, Kim, um, for your lead. I, um, I just wanted to kind of, I don't really know how to ask this question, but uh, it's kind of revolved around the last uh, sentence where you read the alcoholic at certain times has no effective mental defense against the the first uh, drink. And then the last sentence where it says his, his defense must come from a higher power. Um, me being like, ugh, I guess a downtrodden compulsive overeater and ne- never ever thought that I would have like neutrality around my being foods and behavior. But I went through the process of working uh, uh, 12 steps with a, a vision for you sponsor. And and I do have that. But it's like I feel so, right now I'm on the 12th step. It's like I feel so emotionally overwhelmed because I'm in a state of mind. Like, you, you know, it's just like a something I never thought about. Being at, and um, my question is Hello, Gladys, continue. Oh, my question is um, if I don't at this point feel connected, um to a higher power, uh, do I not have that, like, defense? Or what do I do to get that connection with? It's like my emotional issues are overwhelming my connection with the higher power. So is there, like, no defense even being at the 12th step? Thanks, Gladys. Um, You went through the 12 steps absolutely, correct? Yes. Okay. So have you have you started to feel those ten step promises? You're saying you you're feeling neutrality, you're feeling safe and protected, but you're doubting that experience. Is that what you're saying? Um, yeah, in a way, it's like I'm not doubting the experience, but because the experience is real. Okay. But I I feel like I'm stuck. Like, where do I go from here? Because I don't, I still don't feel that connection you- with. Have you the higher power because of the past. Have you started sponsoring yet? No, my my sponsor suggested that I do, but okay. That that I my my experience that's what's missing. You know, sponsoring isn't optional. The only way that we're going to be able to keep the spiritual experience is helping to create it in others. I'm going to read from page 89, first sentence. Practical experience shows that nothing, nothing will so much ensure immunity from drinking as intensive work with other alcoholics. The other way I read it is practical experience shows that those who don't work with others wind up drinking again. So my personal experience, again, was I understood that I, I uh, had these 10-step promises I got. I got neutrality, but it just was so beyond my understanding that I, I, it terrified me. And people told me I was recovered. I'm like, that doesn't make any sense. How could I be in away for 17 years and in six weeks I'm recovered? What I found for myself was I didn't feel recovered until I started sponsoring. Alone in my head, I often can't feel a power greater than myself. But when I'm working with somebody else, man, can I feel God through them? 
I feel God going through me when I'm working with another person. So my suggestion is to get directly in to sponsoring. And I, and I consider steps four through nine simply a skill set, Gladys, so I think of it this way. You're in nursing school, and you get graduate, and you get you know, your certificate and your state, whatever, I think you have to get state certified or something. I'm not a nurse, obviously. Um, and you're learning all this stuff in a clinical setting. You don't feel like a nurse until you get in the hospital. When you are actually working on physical patients, when there's a 10 car pileup and the person's going stat, stat, and you're having to use all those skills that you learned in the classroom, and you're using them now. So that's what 10, 11, and 12 is. If we learn that skill set in 4 through 9, that skill set means nothing unless we implement it in 10 and 11 and 12. And it's going to feel awkward. It talks about being an experienced in step 11. But as we continue to use the skill set, we're going to feel more comfortable in our recovery the same way that an RN feels more comfortable once they start working in the hospital. And it is a daily reprieve. I, you know, that's where I think the one day at a time has been, has been watered down. My daily reprieve is not with the allergy. My daily reprieve is with the mental obsession. This chapter we just went over tells me what I am up against. And understanding what I'm up against makes me dig into 10, 11, and 12 with the veracity I used to dig into a bag or a box with the food. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. But basically, are you saying, like, even though I signed up because I wanted to stop eating compulsively, it's more to it than that, basically? That's just the beginning. But I think that if you start sponsoring, because you have, you've had an experience, you now need to share if you want to keep it. And as you start sponsoring it, because my experience is with this material, it was great going through it as a sponsee or as someone going through the material. It has depth and weight when I bring other people through it. This, this book becomes alive every time I take someone else through the book. And I think, that, you know, my, I think that will be your experience as well. You bring someone through that doctor's opinion, you're going to understand your allergy more than anything. You bring someone through the, more about alcoholism, you are going to be drilling home by using your own experience to help someone, that you have this mental obsession, and that's going to keep you grounded in the work. Oh. So, I, so I would put your name out there on Monday morning. I know you listen live. Go in there, put your name out there, and offer to take people through doctors' opinions. Start taking people through the steps now. Oh, okay. All right, thank you. Thank Welcome you, Welcome to Salesforce. That's right. That's what we say. <laughs> Susan Kay, your turn. Hi. Um, hi, Kim. Thank you so much. And uh, the last speaker or question answered some of my questions. I've been new in recovery again. I've been on and off in program for almost 30 years. And my early on it was I did weighing and measuring to help relieve the mental obsession and that's not how I'm doing it now. I'm doing it more with the red light, yellow light foods. But there are still some in the, um, when I say questionable, that are, are maybe necessary, like some whole grains and things like that, that is weighing and measuring a um, playing with fire and that food should possibly just be gone. And I know it's individual for everybody, but I didn't know if you've had experience with um, your own experience or with any people you sponsor. Thank you. Weighing and measuring, thanks, Susan. Weighing and measuring doesn't treat the mental obsession. Weighing and measuring would treat the allergy if your problem is volume. 
So, you, you know, if you, I mean, that's like saying someone who's got a peanut allergy will only have a few peanuts and you should be okay. You know, weighing and measuring, um, we have to eliminate everything that creates a barrier between us and our higher power. So anything that creates the, I feel like I'm getting snarky, I'm sorry. But um, I have to know whether what my allergy is. Me personally, if I am not having a Snickers bar, I can eat enough mashed potatoes to create that same effect. So I have to weigh and measure because volume creates that effect. I don't have the ability to say, well, if I weigh and measure a Snickers bar, then that's, that's going to be okay. So weighing and measuring, some people who do it is because they're trying to limit their calories. There's nothing to do with the allergy, so maybe they don't have to weigh and measure all the time. It, the, the idea is whatever creates that effect. Now, what I have found for myself is because I was being rigorously honest and I was eliminating all those foods, but I started to notice other things started, I'm not, I always use the word trigger, they started to tickle the allergy. I started to notice I was gravitating towards other foods. When foods get too sexy, and I think of it this way, I, I personally am a big Brad Pitt fan, that type of guy just frosts my cookies. So if I walk into a room of 30 guys, there's certain guys that create butterflies in my stomach. I can't explain to you why. I don't even know the guys, but I can feel it. I know there's something going on there. I can feel that same thing with the food. So if a food starts to get exciting, if it starts to get, you know, to be entertainment, even though I didn't realize it when I first got abstinent, that food needs to be eliminated. I don't have the option to say, well, this food's a little bit exciting. I'm only going to have it three days a week, or I'm only going to weigh and measure it. That food has to be eliminated because my body doesn't understand weighing and measuring a binge food. My body doesn't understand that I'm going to limit it and maybe I have a threshold for this food. I personally don't believe in yellow light foods. I use yellow light to get people to talk about foods that they don't want to talk about because a food either creates the phenomenon of craving it doesn't. And to me, yellow foods are the foods that we talked about in the beginning of the chapter, trying to control and enjoy my eating. Those yellow foods are the foods that most people are trying to control and enjoy. And maybe you can do it for a limited amount of time. But the allergy will not allow you to do that for any extended period of time. Does that address your question, Susan? Make sure I didn't get off track. No, that was great. Thank you so much. It helped a lot. Thank you. Thanks, Susan K. Dana, Dana W.? Was there a Dana W. who had a question this morning? All right. Perhaps I was wrong on that one. All right. This will be our final invitation for those who have questions. Star 1 to unmute. To announce yourself, please. Liz T. Liz T. Anyone else? Rini W. I'm sorry. Leslie W. Okay, Leslie W. Rini W. Rini W. Yes. Okay, Rini W. Anyone else? Patty W. Patty W. Last invitation for today. Okay, I think all minds are clear. Liz T. 
Hi, good morning, Kim. Hi, good morning, Kim and Leah. Thank you so much for your service. Uh, really great discussion this morning. I'm just soaking it, soaking it all in. Um, my question is about um, face-to-face meetings. So I think a lot of us experience in our face-to-face meetings, um, not a lot of people identifying as recovered sponsors. And so when, like I'm newly recovered, and if someone approaches me to sponsor them and I talk about a vision for you and how listening to the recordings helped me, and listening to the live meeting daily, and that's what I had to do in order to recover and go through the steps with the recovered sponsor. For example, I had to listen for a while before I was even willing to ask for a sponsor. You know, it was kind of like getting through that denial, learning more about my disease, going back out and experimenting, coming back and listening, like, oh, that's what happened. So when someone approaches me and I share how what has worked for me and they resist that, um, I know I need to just let them go. But is is that approach correct, or should I just be saying, okay, call me tomorrow, let's go over your food, let's get in the doctor's opinion and go for it? Am I am I am I doing more harm by by encouraging them to go and listen to the live meeting? Because um, for me, being just in, physically in the face-to-face meetings was not enough, or am I just staying true to myself, what worked for me? And if they don't like what they're hearing, they can move on and ask someone else. So does that make sense? Yeah, it, it definitely makes sense, but I think there's not a right answer to that. I think you need to get quiet okay. with your higher power and tell your truth. So either yeah. answer could be correct depending on what your own truth is. I'm just going to read from from 96, though, um, where it talks about working with others. It says, do not be discouraged if your prospect does not respond at once. Search out another alcoholic and try again. You are sure to find someone desperate enough to accept with eagerness what you have to offer. We find it a waste of time to keep chasing a man who cannot or will not work with you. If you leave such a person alone, he may soon become convinced that he cannot recover himself. So what I personally believe is there's this sacred space, this sacred space where a clear message is said and a person's heart and ears are open. And I don't know when that's going to be. So my job as a recovered person is to simply be, be very clear on the message and whoever wants that message is going to be drawn to me. I'm not there to force anything on anybody. You know, so my feeling is just get quiet with your higher power and tell your truth. And my truth is I'm recovered. If that pisses some people off, that's okay. If I'm in a room with 30 people and 29 of them are pissed off about it, but that one person in the back has heard hope for the first time in the 10 years she's been in L.A. that she doesn't have to suffer anymore, I am totally cool with that. Not a problem. So I have to live in my truth, and I can't tell other people how to live in their truth. So I would just get quiet with your higher power and ask how you, Liz T., can carry this message of depth and weight and then answer when people are, are ready, to, ready to hear that, that answer. Thank you, Liz T., for the question. Leslie W. Hi, this is Leslie W. Can you hear me, Leah? Yes, very well. Thank you so much. Kim, thank you so much for your talk this morning um, and for your willingness to be of service. Um, This is Leslie W. Recovered in Tennessee. I learn so much um, every time I listen to you guys, um, and I'm grateful for those who have gone before me. My question is, um, if I have a sponsee that I have worked through the steps, um, 
and I've, I've worked, I do it through the big book. We read chapter by chapter through the big book. Um, but we, you know, we're done with a vision for you. Um, I ask her question. I ask that sponsee questions. Um, do you, I ask them if they, they the, the promises, if, if they feel that the promises have come true for them and if they feel that they're recovered, do they have neutrality around the food? If they say no, um, is there anything else that I can do to help them? Because I'm just not sure what to do. Um, my guess is that it's a 10, 11, and 12 issue. Um, my guess is that maybe there's something missing in in those three steps that they're not doing on a daily basis, and that's why they don't feel recovered. But is there anything else that I can do as the sponsor to help them get there, or do I just need to kind of back off and allow them and, and leave it up to them? That's my question. Mm, tough one, Leslie. Um, I no. know. <laughs> you, you, one of the most difficult things I do on a daily basis is what step three tells me I have to do. I have to quit playing God. I can't make anyone do this work. I lose three people, lose people normally in three places. Step four, step nine, and step 12. Mm-hmm. And, you know, just like I thought that life would be perfect when I got to a size six, I thought life would be perfect when I got to step 12. And a lot of people stopped doing the work. All you can do is share your experience, let them know what, you know, how you what I'm hearing in your voice is that you work this program incredibly hard to keep what you have. Let them know that. We cannot, we're not there to raise people. We're not there to make them do anything. All we can do is share our experience. Maybe they need to relapse. Maybe they need to get in more pain. I have no idea. Mm-hmm. But I would just get quiet with your higher power. Ask how you can tell your truth. Ask how you can be useful to that person. But once, once you've gotten them in touch with the power, it's their job. You know, I always think of it this way, and I've never been married. So I think it's funny I think of this, but you, know, you meet a guy and you're all excited and it's all exciting and new. That's kind of like, you know, you come to LA and all this, you know, you listen to Vision for you, you hear all these great personalities. And, and then you realize you want to go steady and you start and have to do some work. You, know, you start working the steps and everything. And then you get engaged and you're kind of excited because you're learning all these, you know, you're, you're now planning a life together. So to me, that's kind of like 10, 11, 12 to a certain extent. And then you get on, you, know, you, you get to the wedding, you're on the altar, and you say, I do. What happens if you never talk to your husband again? Are you going to have a marriage? No. And I think a lot of people do that. They get to that finishing line and they think, I'm done. You're only going to have a good marriage if you, have a, have, you work on that relationship. You're only going to have a good relationship with your higher power if you work on it. Step 12 is just the beginning. Every time you finish a step in, in this book, it's only a beginning, it's only a beginning, but it's so true. But I can't want that for anybody. I'll just tell you a funny thing, and this, I, I'm, I'm not going to curse, but my God curses, so I'm not going to curse. I was getting into meditation, trying to remember all the people I've worked with who I haven't heard from or I know have relapsed, and remember their names. And I'm sitting there, and all of a sudden God said to me, Kim, I know their effing names. And I thought, oh. Here I am thinking, if I don't mention someone's name, God's not going to be there for them? Come on. And now I just say, a general prayer in step 11, God, help everyone that I've ever touched. Because I can't do anything. I'm not there to be their higher power. 
So I would just you know, let them know what works for you and what they choose to do with that information, Leslie. You are, I mean, I, we've talked a couple of times, I hear you online, you are a beautiful example of what God can do in this program. That's the best thing you can do for anybody listening on the line. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that. Thank you, Kim. You're welcome. Thanks, Leslie. Rena W., your turn. Rini W. Star one to unmute. All right, perhaps she had to step away. We'll call her again in a few minutes. Patty W., are you available? Oh, it's Rini W. Rini W., go ahead. Patty, sorry. hold on. No problem. So Rini, go ahead. Thank you, Kim. So enlightening. And Leah, for your service. Um, I, my, my question is twofold. I am at my wit's end. I am a struggling bulimic. Um, I've been in that way for six years. I do have a sponsor now who was bulimic and um, is wonderful, but you know, we don't talk every day. I just got another sponsor because I started listening to A Vision for You, and we're going to do the doctor's opinion. I had, um, I did the 90-day, and the sponsor dropped me. I did everything she wanted me to do because they say if you are willing to do anything, I had to give up my whole social life, people that drink, and we go back to eat. And I turned myself inside out, um, did meetings, read, meditated, Um, The one question I had was, I wasn't allowed to decaf coffee, and I don't find that that's a trigger for me, but I gave it up anyway. But then once she let me go, because I was still bulimic at night, but it started to subside, and I felt that this was so helpful, she still let me go, and I understood that, and I got really upset. Anyway, so I had this super, super abstinent day and night. The next day... I felt like my skin was crawling. I had my oatmeal um, and, you know, my abstinent breakfast. And I know you said that you you have to go through torturous withdrawal. And it was like my skin was crawling. I put on um, meetings. I listened to A Vision for You. I made some outreach calls. And the, the, the voices were so loud in my head that by nighttime, I was into the food and I picked up. It was so strong, a physiological draw and pull that every part of my being just, yeah, I, I, I didn't know what to do. So my two questions are, I'm still trying, I'm, I'm praying, I'm hoping, and I have another sp- new sponsor that's going to take me through the doctor's opinion. But I don't know how to handle that withdrawal, number one. And number two, I love the 90-day, but I feel that decaf is not a problem for me. And I guess at this point, since I did it without the decaf and I was still bulimic, and I guess I feel like I have a separate issue, but my, my sponsor who was bulimic said, Rini. you're the same as everybody Rini. else. Okay, so two questions, please. Okay. How do I get through the withdrawal? And is decaf, if you find something that's not allergic, could you still do it? Thank you. Okay. You're welcome. Sorry. (laughs) No problem. No problem. Okay. First of all, Rini, welcome to your disease. You are are just 
welcome. You know, because everything you mentioned was nine, and I, I work with 90 day people, I'm familiar with the program. You didn't mention the steps once. You ah. mentioned all the different tools that are going around and all the different ways that you can exert your willpower and keep on guard. So I'm going to read on page 101 what I often read to people that come from these very structured programs. And just believe me, 90 day is not a problem. 90 day without the steps is a diet. 90 day with the steps is recovery. How without the steps is a diet. How with the steps is recovery. It's not about a specific sect I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. Page 101, second paragraph says, in our belief, any scheme, any scheme of combating alcoholism which proposes to shield the sick man from temptation is doomed to failure. If the alcoholic tries to shield himself, he may succeed for a time, but he usually winds up with a bigger explosion than ever. We have mm. tried these methods. These attempts to do the impossible have always failed. So a lot of the, you know, I'm not even saying structure, a lot of meetings in general will talk about people, places, and things, avoid your triggers, all these different things. Do you have to do that while you're going through the step process? Absolutely. But understand that the scheme of combating alcoholism, my real problem is my mind, and my, my mind is not treated by these schemes. My mind is treated by the steps. Um, mm. The other thing I want to say is don't separate yourself saying you're bulimic. That just means that you have a different way of trying to control and enjoy your eating. You are no different than anyone who is overweight, anorexic, or bulimic. You are a garden variety compulsive overeater. The more we separate ourselves, the more we think we can do it differently. So your withdrawal is no different than someone who's 500 pounds. Your withdrawal is no different than someone that maybe is 30 pounds underweight. Do you have to go through a withdrawal? Absolutely. Cocoon yourself in recovery. Your recovery cannot be based on the fact that you're going to talk to your, at least this is my experience, my, my recovery couldn't be based on my 8 p.m. phone call with my sponsor. The question mm-hmm. was, was, what was I doing when it wasn't 8 p.m.? I have to, I'm going to have to go through withdrawal. How am I working towards the solution versus trying to control the problem? So the steps are the only answer to your disease because what you described was treating the allergy only with diet techniques. And if you're the compulsive over the type described in this book and your experience that you described to me sounds awfully close, and then it sounds exactly like I just don't want to tell you who you are, but you, your disease does not do well being abstinent. Your disease will not allow you to get abstinent comfortably. So you're going to have to go through that withdrawal, but if you do not do the steps, you're going to have to live that way the rest of your life. And I'll tell you, I don't do well abstinent. Thank you so much. It was. Thank you. Thanks so much. Thank you, Rini W. Patty W., your turn. Thank you. I've had so many questions answered. Um, So I, over the years, have had different OA sponsors. And uh, this last time in the program, I've been here a year now, um, I tried another OA sponsor. And I do have a sponsor for two other programs. Uh, She's one sponsor for two programs. And we're going through the steps again. We go through them every year. Um, I have just decided to keep her uh, and still do my OA steps, uh, you know, on the side with her, uh, though she's not in OA. Just because you have had such amazing spirit, strength, and hope 
What do you think about that? Well, I can just say, Patty, from my observation, because I am not dually addicted. I work with people that are. So my suggestion is you really probably need to talk to someone who has more than one addiction. But I can just tell you the two things that are different in AA and NA, OA, GA, SLIA, the difference between those steps is step one, the disease, and step 12, who we carry the message to. And the people that I work with, they have to have those experiences in that specific fellowship. They can't choose to just sponsor an AA if they're a compulsive overeater, and they can't use their AA step one to have an OA step one. So that, that, that to me is the difference. The steps in between help us get a connection with the power, but I have to understand my powerlessness in that specific illness. And I'll, I'll just give you an example. Um, I had to go to AA meetings. My, my OA meetings were not healthy when I started this journey six years ago. So I would go to AA meetings, and I met this woman who is an alcoholic, alcoholic cocaine addict, and I am a hard drinker. I alcoholically drank for 10 years, had something happen, never drank again, never had to do a step. But I can tell a good AA story. I can relate to the consequences they talk about in AA. I can't help an alcoholic because I don't have a step one experience in AA. If someone talks to me about relating into my drinking, which is a part of my story, I can't help them. I give them to this girl, Amber, okay, because she's the real alcoholic. Amber was in five different rehabs for bulimia. She got sober in AA. She's never had to come to LA. She does, she's not a compulsive overeater. She acted out in food when she was trying to be sober. So if she has somebody and they're talking to her and they relate into more with her with the food than they do with the alcohol, she gives them to me because she can't help them with their food because she doesn't have a step one experience in food. She's a hard eater. And not doing the steps, she didn't have to do work with food. So that's just that's my experience. I would suggest you talk to people who are duly addicted to ask them how that is in practical terms. Thank you, Patty W., for the question. Thanks to everybody who asked questions this morning. And, of course, thank you, Kim, for utilizing your experience and your recovery to help so many others. And it's always fun yeah, to spend time thanks. with you. Hmm? Can I say one more thing? Can I say one of more course, thing? please. I put this down earlier because I just wanted to end with this. I often heard in the rooms, wait till the miracle happens. And I use that as an excuse, as an excuse not to take action. So I just want to let everyone on the line know who's suffering. The miracle has happened. You are listening to a recovered meeting. You are listening to people in whom the problem has been solved. The miracle has happened. Please take action on that information. Don't sit home. Don't, don't make this a passive program. Take action. The miracle is available to you, and it has happened right now, this moment. Take advantage of it. Indeed. Thank you so much, Kim. The share ID for this morning's recording is 9788. 9788 for today's recording. From page 164, our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order. But obviously you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. 
give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you. Until then. <laughs>